0: Oh jeez.
1: Oh, my gosh. You're listening to Aw, Jeez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio.
2: We're here to provide an authentic Minnesota take on a show that's named after a city in North Dakota.
1: Every week, we go over what happened and who's dead now. We'll ask experts to weigh in on the show and talk about the murders, the mob, the music, and more. I'm Tracy Mumford, I write about books for NPR, and I love cable TV.
2: I'm Jay Gabler, I write about music for The Current and your classical, and I'm an editor at a pop culture blog called The Tangential. This week, we interviewed Minnesota native Rachel Keller, who plays Simone, Dodd Gerhardt's daughter and Floyd's granddaughter. But before we get to that interview, we want to discuss this week's episode— which featured some interesting decision-making on the part of Simone, some big developments in her character.
1: A little bit. But first, we've got to go back way back to 1950, which is when last night started, in this flashback to the Fargo, North Dakota movie theater, where we see Otto. Last time, of course, we saw Otto. He was like in a vegetative state from his stroke. But in here, he's healthy, he's at the top of his game, and he wants to retake the throne from the guy who presumably put a bunch of bullets in his dad's body
2: Yep, and he brings poor little dodd along with him and tells him to be like the heads of easter island what not
1: a sound and he has this discussion with the with the new power in town about how he just wants a seat at the table of course that's not actually what's about to happen
2: it's about to happen is that the rival is about to be literally stabbed in the back by young dodd
1: who's got to be nine years old here tops i mean he's mini
2: younger than the age at which most parents would encourage their children to start fatally stabbing men
1: playing at the movie theater is what i think is another fake ronald reagan movie moon base freedom although of course we don't see reagan so
2: no that'll be a big reveal later in the season presumably.
1: who knows yeah who knows what that's about Moving on, we are back in 1979 with Dodd and Charlie. Charlie, if you remember, is Bear's son. Bear does not want his son mixed up in the family business.
2: But too bad Dodd's going to pay it forward and induct Charlie into the family business. Actually, it turns out Charlie has kind of been making some progress along these lines on his own.
1: He's got a bum hand, but that doesn't stop him from being able to reload a gun very quickly and fire off some shots. And caring Uncle Dodd takes Charlie to the donut shop for a little mayhem, Pulls out the cattle prod, which to me was kind of a reference to No Country for Old Men. Ouch. (laughs) Takes down the Kansas City heavies waiting at the donut shop. It's a classic Dodd move, and it's going to come back to bite him in the ass.
2: Then, of course, pauses to order a couple of donuts, which he says, those Kansas City guys who just got cattle prodded, they'll pay for it.
1: Back in Laverne at the Blumquist house, we have Peggy and Ed in the middle of a... A somewhat romantic moment, however romantic you can be in, in tube socks.
2: So many hot, hot, hot moments this, uh, this episode, and it does not get hotter than Ed Bloomquist in tube socks.
1: And Ed's really determined to make a baby, which might work if Peggy wasn't secretly taking birth control pills in the bathroom.
0: That one's stuck for sure. Ed? Yeah?
1: I gotta pee. While they're in the bathroom and Peggy's trying to hide her pills... They talk again about these life spring seminars, and Peggy is determined to go. We've already seen that she made up her mind, but Ed is telling her there's just no way we can afford it if we're going to buy the butcher shop.
2: He says, maybe you can try a cheaper course. And she just says poignantly, a cheaper course? So I can be a less good me?
1: Oh, Peggy. Of course, we know she's already gone behind his back and written the check, which Ed doesn't find out until it's too late. His check for the butcher shop has bounced. And he confronts Peggy outside the salon, like, this is supposed to be our future together. What did you do?
0: We talked about this.
1: Well, if you mean you talked and then I also talked, then yeah, I guess. But not really sure you heard anything. Yeah, It It becomes clear that Peggy is only out for herself.
2: Right, and the buyer in Sleepy Eye is ready to move on the butcher shop, and Yeah, it looks like Ed is going to lose his chance at having a future as a butcher shop owner thanks to Peggy's decision to make a better version of herself via Lifespring. We'll talk in a few more minutes about uh, exactly what this whole Lifespring shenanigan was in the 70s.
1: Meanwhile, Mike Milligan and Simone Gerhardt are having a romantic encounter of their own up in a hotel room.
2: This one with a few more uh, surprises. than uh, seemingly uh, Ed could expect uh, from Peggy.
1: And we get way more insight into Simone. She is one cold lady. When Mike Milligan's asking her, you know, what do you think your family's gonna do? Do you think they're gonna sell out? She's like, oh, my grandma's smart. She'll probably make a deal. Mike Milligan's like, what about your dad? She says, uh, yeah, you should probably kill him.
2: (laughs) As for grandpa, as as, uh, she so uh, discreetly puts it, he's a legume.
1: And she does drop another little detail about grandpa, Otto, who is headed for the doctors later. Hmm. Mike Milligan seems a little too interested in that. Indeed. Meanwhile, in what may or may not be the same hotel, the Gerhart Posse is winding their way down to the basement, which is this weird, strange, dark construction zone. There's plastic sheeting on the walls, but there's this board table sitting right in the middle, and they're there to talk to Kansas City.
2: They want to cut a deal with Kansas City. They want to give Kansas City partial rights to the territory, not full rights. Basically, the Gerhards want to remain autonomous and at peace with Kansas City.
1: And Floyd is all done up in her Sunday best. She's wearing her pearls and she's still very intimidating.
2: Yeah. And uh, basically, Kansas City, despite uh, Floyd's most intimidating stare, is not going to have any of this.
1: So Kansas City thinks about the deal, but then says, there's no way we can't trust you. Look at what Dodd managed to do in a donut shop.
2: Right. And while this meeting is happening, Kansas City is already taking revenge for the whole donut shop debacle by, they fi- by finding Otto on his way into the doctors.
1: War has already begun. Mike Milligan and the Kitchen Brothers take out Otto's bodyguards and the nurse even after she tries to make a run for it.
2: Waitress style.
1: But interestingly, they don't touch Otto other than Mike Milligan takes Otto's hat off and puts it in his lap. And poor Otto just sits there in his wheelchair, half of his face splattered in blood, and stares back at them.
2: Meanwhile, Dent is still looking for Rye, and he's making some progress.
1: He's the best detective on this show. He cruises down to Laverne, he hits the Waffle Hut, waltzes right in, checks out the crime scene, and finds a piece of taillight glass out by the road.
2: And no sooner does he make this discovery than he looks up in the sky and sees, guess what?
1: (laughs) Some strange lights.
2: These things always come in threes, I hear.
1: Armed with this new piece of evidence, he starts cruising for a car that would have a broken taillight. Where do you go? The auto body shop.
2: And guess who just dropped their car off at the auto body shop as part of their grand plan to avoid precisely this kind of situation? Ed and Peggy.
1: Dent waltzes right in. We will learn that nothing is locked for Dent in this episode. Not cars, not houses. He starts pulling the driver's information out of the glove box to find out who this car belongs to.
2: As the poor mechanic kind of haplessly tries to stop him. (laughs)
1: He does no good. And Hansi Dent follows the Ed Blomquist clue all the way to the Blomquist's house.
2: And what does Dent find at the Blomquist's house? He finds in the fireplace... A belt buckle.
1: Ed is not smart enough to know that a belt buckle won't burn.
2: And this is a particularly distinctive belt buckle formerly worn by Mr. Roy Gerhardt.
1: So Dent finds that and escapes out the back the minute he hears Lou Salverson start to come up the front steps of the Blumquist's house.
2: So Lou knew to visit the Blumquists because he had previously been called to the service station after a certain altercation involving the mechanic and Dent. Dent was pulling a knife on the mechanic and was deterred only by Carl Weathers' who had just finished uh, abusing the plumbing, as it's later put, and uh, comes out and shows his piece, by which I mean his gun, deters Dent. They then call Lou, and Lou figures out what's going on, decides he needs to go visit the owners of this car, the Blumquist. So he shows up at the house, Dent leaves. Here's Ed and Peggy, and Lou says, you're going to have to invite me inside.
1: They go inside for the talk, and Ed cannot play it cool for the life of him, he won't make eye contact with Lou, and he can't stop staring at the fireplace.
2: Yeah, and Lou is not really trying to hide his cards from the Blomquist here. Lou is, at, you know, shows that nice, friendly, small-town spirit and basically lets the Blomquist know, I know what happened. The man you killed, or at least the man you hit with your car, is named Rye Gerhardt. His family hurts people for money. If there's something that you need to tell me now is the time to come clean and tell me that there could still be time to fix this for you.
1: For a minute, it seems like Ed might break and confess everything, but of course, Peggy steps right in and stomps all over that idea. And she says, I don't know what you're talking about. We just hit a tree.
2: I think, uh, I think you're gonna need to leave, Lou. And Lou was like, all right, <laughs> did yeah, my, you're my best here.
1: You might already be dead.
2: Do yourself a favor, lock the door.
1: So Lou goes home, and at the end of this episode, we're getting this picture of Lou against the world. Everything is in chaos. Uh, It's war for the Gerhards up in North Dakota. Betsy is getting sicker. We found out that the chemo isn't working, and she's on this trial that may or may not actually give her the pills she needs. And now Peggy and Ed have refused his help, and Lou just senses. He knows that more trouble and mayhem is coming to his town.
2: And What can Lou do? Just sit out front and keep guard. It's what he does.
1: That's right. We saw him in season one guarding the house, and now we learn that's his trademark style.
0: Used to know right from wrong. Moral center. Now. You should go into bed. I'm going to sit out here for a while. Make sure we're, I don't know, safe.
2: So let's dig a little bit deeper into some of the things that happened this week and some of the things that are happening this season. So let's start with Lifespring. We've established that Peggy really thinks it's important for her as a human being to take this Lifespring seminar to the point that she's willing to throw what is apparently quite a substantial amount of money. Into it.
1: $500.
2: It, enough to make a down payment on buying a whole butcher shop if you're in Laverne, Minnesota in 1979. And Lifespring seminars are now commonly regarded as having been, well, in fairness, a lot of people did find it helpful. A lot of people also sued Lifespring.
1: And they sued them for mental distress. And even some family members sued for their loved ones' suicide, saying that this was such a stressful. Seminar, it strained their
2: mental abilities. So, what do you think is the significance of Peggy getting wrapped up in this Lifespring idea?
1: Well, we had the existentialist episode title. So, there's definitely a theme of searching for meaning where there might not be any meaning. That, for me, is what these seminars are. It's just a stab in the dark, it's not going to help anything. And there was also an element of Lifespring that was kind of like a pyramid scheme, it was a word of mouth marketing. And her co-worker at the salon, who's the one who's cajoled her into doing this, already went to one, and now she's dragging Peggy along, too. So there could be some, some motivation on her part to just bring in another convert. You're going to go to Sioux Falls, and you're going to take this course, and you're going to be the best Peggy Blumquist you can be, and no one's ever going to tell you how to live your life again. What I think is funny about the seminars is they were all about trying to make the right decisions, learning to address things the right way, to change your behavior. And in her quest to go to them, Peggy is making some of the worst decisions you could possibly make.
2: The scandals around Lifespring in the 80s were almost a forebear of the scandals that have happened more recently regarding Scientology, where some people participated and felt like, sure, that helped me. But some of the people who became more deeply involved really felt like they came out of it abused, hurt, ripped off. And yeah, it became notorious.
1: There was one case in California. This 24-year-old woman said that it had left her so paranoid and depressed she attempted suicide and ended up spending three years in a mental
2: institution. So not necessarily a slam dunk life improver for P- Peggy Blumquist, although I've got to say she's not doing so great without life Spring. So maybe a little guidance from someone could uh, could help her on a safer path than she certainly seems to be on currently.
1: Quick check-in on the UFO front, because I just can't let this go. When Hansi is kneeling in the snow outside the Waffle Hut, he looks up into the sky and he sees those strange lights, and then he seems to have this moment, and he pulls his pocket watch out and checks the time. For me, this is a straight-up reference to the real-life Val Johnson incident from 1979, when his car hit an unexplained ball of light, and when he came to, his watch and the dashboard clock were both slow by 14 minutes. It's the lost time thing that's usually associated with a lot of UFO experiences.
0: There's a look a boy gets when he's been shot, or or a landmine takes off his legs. And he's laying there in the mud trying to get up because he doesn't feel it yet. His, his brain hasn't caught up with the reality which is he's already dead
3: and uh, he's scaring me
0: but we see it the rest of us and we lie we say lay still you're gonna be fine If you'd been to war, you'd know the look. See, you and Peggy, you got the look.
2: You still think it's Tuesday. You have no idea what's coming. So you noted, Tracy, how many references to war there were in this episode, even more so than in previous episodes of this season, how many references there are to the war between the Gerhards and the Kansas City mob, to the real-life war that many of these characters have fought in. You're right, that references to war really permeate this season. And to me, that develops the theme that comes right out of the movie Fargo, which is the senselessness of violence. The way these characters talk about war, none of them feel like, Their war has been awesome, or their experiences in it have been particularly validating or empowering.
1: Yeah, for me, war was definitely the theme of this episode. We've got Hansi Dent giving this very brutal speech at the auto body shop about his experience in Vietnam, crawling through the tunnels, cutting ears off, the violence of it. We have Floyd Gerhardt telling us that her oldest son was killed in Korea. We also have Lou at the end giving this great speech to Peggy and Ed about the look in someone's eyes. When they're dying, but they don't know it yet.
2: And so violence really is just beginning more violence in this sort of bleak circle. You see, while the references to the existentialists, it seems like there's to be no escaping this cycle of violence. And as in the movie, and as in the first season of Fargo, you have these brutal acts of seemingly senseless violence counterposed to little acts of decency. Characters who want to do the right thing, who think that it should be simple to lead a good life, you just do your work, you have your relationship, and you try to keep things going. But again and again, they find themselves running into these horrific acts of violence. What was
1: interesting for me is how much war was in this episode. There was also an equal amount of love, both romantic and not returned and not. We have two sex scenes. We've got Lou and Betsy, of course. That's one of the great love stories. We also have this love between Floyd and Otto, even though he's in a state where he can't move or speak. There was a lot of affection even at the end when Dodd puts his head on his mother's shoulder and just wants to be comforted. In the face of all this war and this violence that we're talking about, there was a lot of love in this episode.
2: Yeah, which really sort of gets to the anti-heroic aspect of the Gerhards that I mentioned last episode, that they we see them as being really, in a lot of ways, horrible people, all the more so in this episode. And we see, you know, young Dodd being encouraged to stab man in the back, but we also see how they stick together, they care about each other, they try to protect their children in most cases if not all and they have the kind of family ties that midwesterners are supposed to be justifiably proud of they just happen to be a family that uh, has a business of organized crime and hurting people for money
1: but there's one thing that joe Bulo, who's the kansas city mobster in charge at the moment points out that family is a liability in his business if one of his men does something wrong he cuts off his army you know He uses violence and he asks Floyd, you know, when one of your kids screws up, what are you willing to sacrifice? And when Floyd finally gives in and gives Dodd the affection he's looking for at the end, I got the sense that Dodd is going to be Floyd's downfall.
2: It's war.
1: Almost every male character we've met has been to war. This is a world where everyone has a war story. Some are worse than others when we see... Sonny, the auto body attendant, kind of go toe-to-toe with Hansi Dent, who just shuts him down with his stories about war. But there's one character who hasn't been to war. He's also the only character who we've seen in his underwear, and that is Ed Blumquist. As Lou asks him when they're sitting down in that tent scene in their living room,
2: did you go to war? And Ed explains he didn't, because what was his medical problem?
1: He was missing a kidney, which makes him, in this case, actually less of a man.
2: Yeah. And so there is a certain like pathetic aspect to Ed's character that he hasn't had this form of experience that the characters have. He doesn't seem to be as tough as them. He doesn't seem to have quite the stomach for violence. Although, you know, when he, he does show himself capable of disposing of bodies when he needs to, but when he does it, it sort of feels like he's going to work, which, of course, in his case, he's a butcher. He's used to chopping chopping things up and putting things in the meat grinder. And so you sort of get the sense that, you know, when he needs to participate in this cover-up, it's, with, it's, it's without glee or gratification, but just with a sense of doing what he needs to do, going to work to keep his family safe. Some days that means grinding up beef to serve to the customers. Some days it means grinding up mobsters to keep his wife from going to prison.
1: I think it also means doing what your wife tells you. I kind of doubt that that was his idea. I think Peggy thought, how convenient. You work at a butcher shop. This is how we'll get rid of it. She's clearly pulling Ed's strings.
2: So what's our body count now?
1: I think we were at six before. Right. Then we had the movie theater, which I sort of lost track. I think there might have been five guys that got it.
2: Let's just call it a mini massacre. All
1: right. Five in the movie theater in 1950, and then three more of the Gerhart's bodyguards and nurse in the parking lot of the hospital.
2: No rabbits this week.
1: No rabbits, but that brings us to 14 bodies in total.
2: Not quite piled up to the second floor, but we're building to that. We're only four episodes in.
1: And none of them in Sioux Falls. We know we're headed for a massacre in Sioux Falls.
2: Could this happen at the site of the Life Spring seminar? Is that what's going to happen? We, we assume it's going to be a mob war, but maybe there will be some kind of mass suicide or who knows what will happen.
1: That could be crazy if Life Springs gurus get mixed up in all this.
2: Maybe some of them will be aliens.
1: No, I don't think the aliens are going to make it to Earth. I think they're just going to dance in the sky. Oh, one thing. We talked about War of the Worlds in Episode 2 and how that's something from the 30s, what's it doing in the 70s? They remixed it in 1978, and that's the version they were playing with Richard Burton doing the narration.
2: It was very groovy.
1: Shout out to Bud in Arizona for pointing that out to us. Now, in episode three and four, we've seen a lot of the Gerhardt granddaughter, Simone. Simone is determined to get in on the family business, even if her dad Dodd forbids it. Simone is played by Rachel Keller, a native of St. Paul, Minnesota. I've got her here now to talk about being the resident Minnesotan on set. Minnesota doesn't get a lot of the spotlight in pop culture, so how does it feel to get to kind of represent your home state in this Minnesota show? Oh my gosh,
3: that's so funny. You're you're kind of right. We get a lot of bad rap sometimes. Um, I think what's exciting about this show is that in no way is it mocking the culture of Minnesota or the accent or the type of people in a way it's using them and their, um, charms and, and, you know, lovable bits and and weird bits and all, all of that to illuminate this area. Um, so that's exciting because I don't think it's, it's making fun of anything.
1: Do you have a favorite Minnesota nod or Minnesota reference that Fargo has tossed out so far that you've been like, Oh, yep. That's my home.
3: Um, maybe the accents—I I think they're hilarious. Only because I didn't grow up in like that extreme of a of an accent, but I have cousins who who talk like that, and it's, I think it's hysterical. Um, maybe the snow. I mean, I trample to Chelsea Heights Elementary every school every day in my snowsuit. That's where I went to school in Como Park, and so I'm familiar with like the weather too, which was it was. Um, not fun. Fun is not the right word, but familiar to get back to.
1: <laughs> what was it like to pretend that Canada was your home state?
3: It wasn't. It wasn't much of a of a, a challenge. Um, it, it's it's very similar in a lot of ways. The people are really similar in a lot of ways, so that kind of
1: helps. And did you offer any Minnesota expertise on set? Uh,
3: the dialect coach David and I became very good friends, and sometimes he would ask me, like, "Well, how did how did your family say this?" or something like that.
1: Do you think your ability to do the accent might have helped gave you a leg up in the Simone race?
3: I wonder. I wonder. I I remember in the audition room or the, my when I met Noah, I think I like walked out of the room saying, "Well, I am from Minnesota." <laughs> <laughs> and I and I got out and shook my head like, "Oh god, what do they just say?" And and uh had to kind of shake it off, but I I wonder if that helps. I haven't asked them.
1: What was it like to step back into the 70s for this? I mean, obviously, you've got the feathered hair, you've got the high-waisted jeans.
3: I remember my mom gave me a bunch of Polaroids of herself when she was 17 in 1979. And, and um, in a way, that was like one of my best parts of research. It was like looking at these Polaroids of my mom and imagining like what would she be listening to and, you know, just being a teenager at that time. Um and I think it also affords in the same way that like the microcosm of Minnesota affords, you know, the the genius of the story, it it sort of, you know, the the world of the seventies is bright and and crazy and confusing and there's a lot going on at that time and it almost allows us another kind of awesome perspective into um into
1: that that time. So you're kind of channeling your mom, I'm guessing hair wise and clothing wise, but not personality-wise for Simone, right? Uh,
3: I, I, I I was going to say, like, I feel like I'm always channeling my mom, <laughs> but I feel like that's maybe just a life thing. Um, no, no. In fact, I, I remember when I was reading it, I was shocked at the life that this girl grew up in, the way her parents treat her. I mean, that was just so unlike the way I grew up. I never had seen that, so what a joy to be able to imagine this girl and where she came from and how she feels based on what she's seen in her life.
1: Yeah, how would you describe Simone's role in the Gerhardt family?
3: Well, she's the daughter of, of Dodd, and Dodd wants to take over, and um, she's a really kind of troubled relationship with him. She's the eldest daughter. Um, I, I think she's sort of a, a domino effect in a in a bigger sort of... Demise that the family goes through. Um, And, you know, she's, I don't know if she's quite aware of it until it's uh, a little too late.
1: Whose side is Simone on? I mean, is she on the Gerhardt side? She's got some allegiances to Kansas City now. Is she on her own side?
3: There's a moment, there was a moment on set that I had with Jean Smart, who plays my grandmother, that kind of helped me see more of into, into you know Simone and her and her antics I don't I don't think I don't think she even knows that there are sides I think she's playing a game she's playing a, like a little girl's game until it's not a girl's game anymore
1: That's right cuz she's 19 on the show right so she's caught in this weird moment of yeah she's not a kid anymore but no one wants to let her be an adult yet
3: I, Yeah I remember looking through the script and marking down all the times someone called her a girl, and and then when they would call her like a woman. And it seems like, you know, you go through that period of like, well, what am I? And what do I want to be?
1: What was it like on set where, I mean, you've got this really heavy material, but there's also a huge dose of humor to it.
3: I don't remember any of my scenes being funny. Like, when I read them, I was like, no, that's not funny at all. And now, watching it back, I'm like, oh, this is hysterical. So, I, I think that I definitely could have been more aware of the humor at the time. I was maybe just taking things quite seriously, um, but maybe that's part of the world. That it—that's why it's so funny—is that these people think that this is all, you know, very serious.
1: And do you have a favorite time from when you were on set?
3: You know, you're you're living in in a in a new place in Calgary, and um, so I, you know, you you end up kind of like looking to each other, like, "Well, should we go get dinner?" <laughs> so you know, some of these dinners with all these amazing actors that I've admired for so long was special. Patrick Wilson, who went to Carnegie Mellon, too, taught me how to play poker. That was fun. Um, But on set, it was probably my favorite day was probably with uh, Jeff Donovan, with um, him pulling me back into the car. And I don't know, he's just, uh, I think he's amazing. (laughs) He's amazing.
1: That's funny that that scene, which is pretty brutal, is your favorite moment on set.
3: I know, I know. I think it's. I think something happens when you can jive with an actor and play in a way that feels safe. And 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 those really kind of heavier scenes almost afford that. it's like, okay, we're going in. So do you have me? Like, are you going to support me through this? And um, and man, was he there? He was just so inventive and fun, and and that always feels so safe and great.
1: So are you watching along with everyone then?
3: I am. I am.'ve seen I've seen bits and pieces, but I'm a fan, just like everyone else. It's been amazing to watch. I, I live with my grandmother, and um, I got her cable. She we didn't even have cable TV, so I got her cable so that she could watch it on her own couch, which was the important thing. And um, so what we have um, we have fun Monday nights together.
1: And do you have any theories about what's going on with the aliens? I just have to ask.
3: Mm, the UFOs?
1: Yep. Yeah. Do you have any theories? I don't know. I mean, we think maybe it's a red herring. Maybe it's a reference to an actual 1979 UFO experience in Minnesota. We spent a lot of time yeah. talking about it.
3: Well, at the time, people were talking about it, right? I remember reading it, um, and it doesn't it doesn't have much to do with Simone's storyline. And I think I remember someone telling me, like, yeah, like this is part of the story. And I was like, I can't even... I'm still working on this girl over here. Like, I, I still don't even know what that means because I couldn't, I couldn't even look at it. It was so, so big and so amazingly strange. Um, but it's it, Noah's the kind of person that if he, if he's just like, like he would come over to me on set and like say something kind of quiet and low, and you just kind of like, it's just like suddenly the Bible. You're like, yeah, you're so right. He, he just has a way of like you just trust him so completely because he's so so smart. So I don't know, I'm I, I'm like I'm with him whatever he wants to do with the, with the with the UFOs I'll go with him.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to fill us in on all the Fargo goodness.
3: Of course. Thanks, Tracy.
1: Bye now. Bye. <laughs> Okay, big question for me this episode, is Otto going to have some kind of recovery from all the shots we get him with these really serious looks? I'm thinking he's in there. We haven't seen the last of him.
2: Oh, he'll probably make some gnomic utterance and then die.
1: Right? Some last words. I mean, in this episode, we saw him at the peak of his power in the movie theater, and then we saw him at his lowest point possible when he's just paralyzed in the parking lot while everyone around him is being killed. But the look on his face tells me we haven't heard the last from Otto.
2: That would be, that. that you're, you're right, that does that would seem to be setting up a seemingly surprise twist where someone's in a desperate situation and about to get taken out, and then they're, the assailant is shot in the back, and who could it be? Has Otto picked up a handgun? Why, yes, he has.
1: A miraculous recovery. I don't know. I think it could happen.
2: I feel like when the next episode starts, I'm going to have a knot in my stomach already wondering what is going to happen to Ed and Peggy, because clearly Dent has their number. They have declined in help from law enforcement. At least Ed is probably pretty defenseless.
1: And if you remember, there's something funky going on with the meat grinder. So that could also turn out to be a problem as well.
2: That would be a good problem to have, a broken meat grinder at this point, Fred.
1: We'll have to see. Ah, Jeez is produced by Tracy Mumford, Jay Gabler, and Molly Bloom. Many thanks to John Gordon and Steve Nelson.
2: We're live tweeting the episodes on Twitter at podcast. That's A-W-J-E-E-Z podcast. And if you find us on Twitter, you can find a link to a giveaway you can enter for a chance to win your very own Fargo Survival Kit.
1: Also, tweet at us if you know what was up with the movie at the beginning of this episode or what movie Little Molly was watching last episode. We're curious what kind of mix of fact and fiction Noah Holly is playing with here.
2: Our theme music is by the Valdons, courtesy of Secret Stash Records. Okay, then. Okay, then. Bye now.